Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Please subscribe to this podcast for future episodes. So this is the first episode of the Arrangers Podcast. Uh, my name is Aaron Hedenstrom, and uh, this is uh, my co-host, Drew Zaremba. Hello. How you doing, buddy? Oh, I'm great. I'm excited to be uh, doing this with you. I'm so, so stoked. We're going to be on the radio. <laughs> That's right. So I wanted to just lead off because uh, I think it's an important question to answer for those of you listening. What is the purpose of this podcast and what kind of made us decide we wanted to start it? And I think for me, the first thing would be um, I love listening to quality produced radio shows mm-hmm. and podcasts. And I love that there's free information out there for uh, educational purposes, for inspiration, um, just in terms of developing your mind and developing your um, your brain, uh, I think the older I get, the more I appreciate how valuable it is to keep your brain in shape. And so listening mm. to podcasts is a good way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think uh, there's a lot of uh, hungry young musicians who want to get into arranging and who want to become a professional arranger or composer. And yeah. um, Drew, I think both of you and I will get uh, questions from time to time from some of these younger musicians about how do I become an arranger? And I thought, I think... This could be a forum for us to discuss the ins and outs of that, and um, definitely. So that's that's kind of my my inspiration for doing this. Yeah. What about you? Oh my gosh! Well, I'm I'm thrilled to just be a part of it. Honestly, um, I also love high good quality radio programming, and you know, it's kind of been a, a secret desire of mine to be on a a radio show, and so this is perfect because I get to co-host with you, one of my very best friends, and talk about the stuff I love the most, which is writing music. And so um, for both you and I are, you know, uh, we know what we're doing when it comes to arranging, thankfully, and, and we, we both want to share that. And so we get questions, and this I see this as a great opportunity for us to really share um, what we've learned uh, and what we are learning, and, um, and really create a dialogue, you know, between us and, and, and students and professionals, uh, host, host, uh, some all-stars, uh, sometime, I hope in the near future, but really, uh, have fun really. And, and talk about music and, and see where it goes. Amen. And you know what? That's a great point because, um, that was the other reason I wanted to start this is just because um, I love talking about music. I love talking about yeah. writing music. And, and we've been talking about music for, you know, since we've been friends, you know, we've been just... A, five plus years. Nerding out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So. Exactly. This is an excuse to nerd out and share that with the world. So No doubt. We're excited. And if you're if you don't know who Drew and I are, you're probably wondering... Uh, well, who are these guys? So Yeah, really? Come on! <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to just introduce ourselves, and I wanted to, to just say that Drew and I were both um, students at the University of North Texas. Mm-hmm. We both graduated within the last few years. Go Mean Green. Go Mean Green. And um, 
We both uh, played in the University of North Texas One O'Clock Lab Band. Mm-hmm. Uh, we both play saxophone and woodwinds. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. two more saxophone players. Jeesh. <laughs> like the world needs more of those. <laughs> um, but uh, we both studied with Brad Lely on sax mm-hmm. and Rich DeRosa, the great maestro of jazz arranging. No doubt. So, so Drew, I just wanted to ask you, how did you get into music and kind of take us through your journey from growing up and discovering music, discovering that you had a passion for it, and then how did that kind of blossom into the career that you've had in jazz arranging? Oh, boy. Life story. Well, for the rest of you, you can probably just turn down the radio until, and wait till we get to Aaron's side of the story. But uh, for, for me... <laughs> um, <laughs> For me, it was uh, it all started when I was I think I was like two or three, and I don't remember it. But my my parents uh, said uh, recall me saying that I wanted to learn every single instrument in the world, and so they said, "Oh, we'll just get him a keyboard," you know. And and so I learned key, and so I picked up keyboard and and started taking classical piano lessons, and that's where I really think a lot of my just. Um, innate ear and skills come from those years of studying classical piano just since I was six, basically. Um, And so like every week there would be a half an hour piano lesson and then there'd be at least 15 minutes of theory at the, at the computer. And so that really made a huge, huge difference in my understanding of, of music when I got to college. Um, But anyway, so I continued playing classical piano till I was 18. When I was 10, I uh, I picked up saxophone because I loved listening to smooth jazz with my uh, in the, in the car with because my mom would turn it on and I was like oh saxophone's cool I'll do that hmm. and then someone said oh you play saxophone well you surely know who Charlie Parker is and I'm like Charlie who uh, <laughs> and so fortunately I had a saxophone teacher who was hip to jazz and who really knew what was what was what to be taught there and so he started me uh, and I was and I was under his tutelage for for a year or two, Mr. Krauss. And then I moved to Belgium, where I continued to study saxophone and classical piano and uh, and start writing a little bit. Um, and that's when I re- decided, hey, I want to do this for a profession. I want to I want to study music in college. And so I got to con- I just continue studying jazz, and then I sort of self-taught on piano and learned voicings and stuff. And when I got into college, I I really started writing. I They said, oh, any lab band will read whatever you put in front of them. So I was like, great. <laughs> and I barely knew how to write for any of the instruments, but boy, I, I really wanted to write and just hear. And there's a, it's such a powerful feeling when you have a chart read. And uh, there were so many failed charts of mine. And then we find, and then I was like, oh, I, uh, one, there was one chart. It was like, when you smiling and the two o'clock ba- uh, lab band got to read that. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. They sound so good. And, uh, and then, it, then, it, then when I took Rich's class my uh, sophomore year, that's when I realized uh, this is what I want to do, uh, what really want to pursue. And so that, that's led to a myriad of opportunities, being in the one o'clock lab band and having the uh, charts read there, and then that just leading to other opportunities. Um, that's, uh, I guess that's the long, short version, or the short, long version <laughs> of, of my story. So... Uh, that's uh, that's where we are now. Um, Aaron, what about you? What's uh, what what got what got you into music arranging, and when did you start music, and how did that all begin for you, man? So my story, basically, I want to start with the the uh, the fact that 
ever since I was a kid, I've always been kind of a creative-minded person who wanted to make things. And I think even before I was uh, heavily into music, that was the case. Uh, I, I was just always into drawing pictures and creating. Uh, I used to be kind of into creative writing. Of course, this is when I was like a kid, so my, yeah. my stuff wasn't cool, but but I was always interested in creating stuff. And I started taking piano lessons when I was in, I would say, I think it was third or fourth grade, and um, wasn't too disciplined of a student. I was kind of an ADD kind of, you know, I couldn't really sit down and practice one thing for too long, which is probably why I became a jazz player. Um, <laughs> oh, that is so... Honestly, that is... Uh... Uh, Anyone who knows Aaron, they know he's a virtuosic saxophonist, so you know that's uh, a load of, load of crud right there. Well, thank you. Um, this is a family show, right? I gotta, you'll, or, or, or will you bleep me <laughs> that's out? That's right. Is, or will you, uh, that's right. Beep! No, I'll do that. Yeah, right. So I started on piano, and then I started doing sax lessons in um, fifth grade in elementary school. Wasn't that interested in it, I guess. Um at that time. And then when I got to middle school and, and I had this amazing band director named Jeff Levine mm. uh, at Ramsey Junior High in St. Paul, Minnesota. And he had a really good program going at the school and he was a great jazz player, a trumpet player. Uh, and so he had this really great thing going where he had jazz combo and he had uh, a couple of jazz bands and he had kids really inspired and motivated, and hmm. that was the first time that I really got into jazz was in 7th and 8th grade. I remember he asked me, um, have you ever improvised? And I, th- I said, what's that? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he said, it's just when, kind of when you make up music on the spot. I was like, oh, yeah, because actually um, I, w- I did do a lot of that at the piano. And I, right. I did a lot of playing by ear, just kind of gravitated towards that on my own. Yeah, me too, very so, much. Yes. Uh, so I got in a jazz band, and my parents gave me a Charlie Parker CD and a John Coltrane CD for Christmas during middle school. Wow. And then it was all over. Then it was all over. I, I was, like, instantly hooked on um, Charlie Parker and was just listening to him day and night. You know, I remember wow. staying up till laying in bed, trying to fall asleep, listening to Charlie Parker every night. So, Oh, my God. So then I uh, took some jazz piano lessons with a, a local teacher in town here, um, and I started taking uh, jazz saxophone lessons a couple of years later with a fantastic player in town named uh, Chris Thompson. Mm. And I kind of had an interest in writing music even then, and so I went to University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire for my undergraduate degree, yep, where they yep. had a, a really good jazz program under the... Uh, direction of Robert Baca, who's a, a great trumpet player and educator. And then I also studied classical composition under Ethan Wickman, who um, was an awesome teacher. And that's where I w- met my wife, actually. But, oh, uh, wow. And then I got into big band arranging, uh, bringing charts into the school jazz band and getting them played. And and that was just a thrill, like you mentioned. Um, and uh, I did kind of a DIY big band album when I was at Eau Claire, just kind of a low-budget thing. It was fun. It was kind of a mixture of jazz, hip-hop, and classical music, kind of a lot of the stuff that I liked listening to. Um, And it was a good experience. And then I went on to University of North Texas for my master's and doctorate. That's where we met. That's right, and that's where we met. And uh, that was obviously a great environment to learn. Um, Amazing faculty, 
Uh, I learned just as much from the students as I, I did from the faculty, and that's saying something because there's just so many talented students, so many talented faculty, and graduated in May with my doctorate in jazz composition. So Woo-hoo! now I'm here, and I uh, recently moved back to uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area where I grew up and been freelancing ever since. There it is. And you're a new father. And I'm a new father. Uh, Yahoo! My, my three-week-old baby was born on Christmas Day. His name is Hans Hedenstrom, and he is pretty much the most precious little baby I've ever seen. Yeah, he is pretty awesome. So, and uh, kind of an aside, uh, Drew and I, um, our wives actually started uh, hanging out, being running buddies, and they ran a half marathon together. So That's right. They are, uh, they're definitely our better halves. <laughs> yes, definitely better at running and everything else, halves. <laughs> exactly. Except jazz arranging. We'll take that. We'll take that for ourselves. We'll claim that one. Yeah. So now that you know a little bit about Drew and I, um, I wanted to dedicate this first episode to answering some common questions people have. So I put a little feeler out there on Facebook to Drew and I's network of friends, family, and whoever else. And we got a lot of questions. So I just figured we could go down the list and kind of briefly touch on each of the questions. Um, Some of these questions I think will become full episodes later on, but yeah, uh, definitely. But I think it would be valuable to just read down the the questions and kind of get, get some discussion started. Excellent. Let's do it. All right. Let's open up the mailbox and uh, see what questions people have submitted. There's the mailbox music. Uh, The first question is from uh, Paul Burke. Paul writes in, So when arranging, do you find it helpful to do a three-line sketch of your ideas, designating lead lines and accompanimental figures, within a form before you actually start scoring your arrangement? So, what you got? Well, it depends on how much time I have. (laughs) I mean, Mm. most of the music is you know, just three lines anyways, you know, a lead sheet is two lines, you know, it's a melody and a bass line, you know, so Mm -hmm. there's two. And so I'm always thinking about bass line and melody. And I, I usually, I score those first. And if there's a specific voicing, then I'll use that. But, you know, I'll, I won't, I won't use it in a three line format. Usually I'll just throw up my big band. If I'm doing a big band score, for example, and I'll I'll have my I'll have all my instruments there, but I'll ignore them. You know, I'll just put the melody in, you know, the piano and the bass line in the bass. And then if I need a if there's a counterline that I'm really thinking about, then I'll put that in the guitar or something. And uh that's you know, so I guess in a sense, yes, but I just don't I don't feel the need to put it in neatly in a score. I'll just copy it's so easy to just copy and paste into different stems and finale so it's you know but uh i'm yeah before i expand and orchestrate definitely i'm always thinking about melody and harmony uh and counterlines you know before i almost always before i assign them to instruments yeah and i i'm gonna just jump in and say that i completely agree i can almost never get an arrangement done if i don't do a sketch first of some kind, and that could be as simple as one melody line or 
whatever, and I can fill in the rest later, or um, a three-line sketch like Paul is asking about. You know, I think it's funny. I look back to when I first started writing music and composing on, on paper, and I would literally sit there and slave away measure by measure and score out each instrument. Wow. And, you know, and that was just like such a, just a inefficient way to do it. Right. Um, first of all, I don't, I don't really think it serves the music better. I think it, it doesn't help at all. But I also think um, it's easier to come up with three lines of music. So melody, bass line, and then maybe a counter line, like you were saying. Um, and then to score it out. I mean, that's just so yeah. much easier than trying to kind of go measure by measure and voice out things kind of on the fly. I would rather voice things out on a sketch at the piano first and then assign the instruments. Yes. And yes. It's from what I know about some of the the great uh composers and arrangers in history, I think a lot of them worked in sketch form as well. Like uh John Williams, I've heard him say that he spends a ton of time at the front end developing simply just the melody and the chords and the kind of the form of everything right. before he scores because that's ultimately what um, the bulk of the music is going to be. The other the other stuff is just what colors or what instruments do you want to play it. But the melody has to be really strong to start with, so that's where the sketch form comes in. Um, and then another example is uh, when I was doing my, my dissertation project, um, one of my pieces that I was studying was Sketches of Spain by Gil Evans, and I ended up uh, getting a hold of a photocopy of one of Gil's original sketches, manuscript sketches. Wow. And and he certainly did sketch things out. Mm-hmm. And um, Yeah. And then a lot of these older composers where, where you had to write it out by hand, they would sketch things out and they would put little notes in there, right? And yes. And then they would give it to their copyist, and the copyist would get really good at interpreting those little, you know, whatever they were shorthanding. Yes. They would get good at writing that out. Yeah, you see it in Broadway scores all the time, you know. The composer's just written a piano vocal, and they'll put like a little line in there, that, you know, plus VL, you know, add violin, you know, or uh, or, or whatever it is. And... Um, mm-hmm. You know, but getting back to the melody discussion you were having with that could be a whole nother topic in itself. But <clears throat> and there's because if you write at the piano, then you have like the unlimited range, you know, and you're just thinking purely melodically, and then you can assign an instrument based on what the character is of the melody based on the range of the music. For example, you know, like something around middle C. If you want it triumphant, you wouldn't put it on the flute, you know? (laughs) But at the same time, if you know that you want to score for flute, that will affect the way you write your melody. And so, you know, so starting with three lines doesn't mean that you're not thinking about orchestration, you know? It, you can, you can plan many different ways. Like, I love French horn, so I know that there's a particular way I'm going to write a melody that I know is going to go on the French horn uh, because it, it just sits in a certain register. And so uh, in the same way, you know, there, there's multiple different ways to approach that whole three-line business. Mm-hmm. There we go. So that's that's kind of a 
brief discussion on it. We could obviously go for a long time on that. But yeah, that's that's kind of our thoughts is that, yes, we do like to, um, most of the time, if we can, do a sketch ahead of time, and that could be a three-line sketch or, or something else. And you, and you would know, Aaron, because you're like the master of baseline counter melodies to melodies. You know, if you, if you go online and listen to any of Aaron's music, not that I'm trying to plug it or anything, Yes, I am, but I'm also... Uh, it's genius. Like, you listen to the interaction of the bass line and the melody. Just about, I would say most of your composition, like, not most, maybe, like, I don't know, 60% have, the, it's like that modern jazz vibe with the sometimes complicated, sometimes very simple bass line that just complements the melody so perfectly uh the the two cannot exist without the other and so i imagine you you exist on the sketch writing field for quite a while before you go and orchestrate very true and and i thank you for your kind words drew that's uh it's very flattering and humbling humble and excited hashtag um, humbled and excited that's a north texas north texas joke if sorry if we sorry if that flew over your head let's go on to uh the next question which is our our buddy justin pierce aha Hey, Justin. Uh, as an arranger, what are your favorite books slash exercises slash transcriptions to practice on piano? Whoa. Good question. Um, first of all, that touches on something that's very important, which is uh, you need to know some piano if you're going to be an arranger. Pretty much. I guess there's some guitarists who kind of get away with it, but it's really difficult to not and to without playing piano. It is. It's not as limited as far as how many notes you can play at once. Yeah, yeah. So you can, you can get around a lot of issues on, on the piano. Uh, for me, my favorite book for piano is um, the Mark Levine Jazz Piano Book mm. because it starts you out with just simple concepts like arranging a melody with the third and the seventh in the left hand, and then you can expand from there into larger voicings, into different techniques for voicings. But that is the book that really helped me out the most. Um, and then as far as exercises or transcriptions, there's a really pretty simple introduction to a, a recording that I really like. It's it's Billie Holiday singing I Loves You, Porgy. And huh. the the piano intro is very simple, um, but it, it uses the drop two voicing. And that was one of the most influential transcriptions I did as an arranger because... I really got to, um, first of all, use my ear to, to try to decipher what was going on, and, and that's sort of the transcription aspect. And then just realizing after I had transcribed it, oh, he's using a drop two voicing, and that's why this sounds so full and so rich, even though he's only using two hands at the piano. Yeah. So any anytime you hear a sound you like, you're like, I, I want to use that sound, I want to figure that out so I can use it in my writing... Anytime you do that, you can go ahead and try to transcribe it. And you're never you're not gonna always be a hundred percent right because transcribing chords is kind of a complex art, but just the fact that you're using your ears and trying to explore and get close to the sound is gonna benefit you as an arranger. Yes. Oh my gosh. The time that you put into transcription will always yield good dividends. Um there's an amazing Gosh, June Lee, I think his... Yeah, June Lee is an amazing arranger, and he's arranged, like, a bunch of Jacob Collier stuff. Have you checked that out? 
Uh, I've seen links to the videos, but I didn't. I didn't get a chance to click on them. They're spot on. Like this guy has a. I don't know where his ears came from, but uh, wow, it's it's incredible. And so, um, and just to think how much he's grown through that transcription. Thankfully, he's sharing it with everyone. Yeah. But yeah, tr- transcriptions are such an important thing to do, even if they're just painstakingly slow and difficult. Mm-hmm. Um. My favorite arrangement, the one that changed my life anyways, was the Rayburn Wright Inside the Score. Uh-huh. That was basically my arranger's Bible for uh, my entire undergrad. I would constantly go back to that book and look at voicings from Sammy and Thad and uh, Brookmeyer. You know, that those are my huge influences. And I would just like, wait, what do they do on this chord? How do they voice that? Oh, okay. That's what I'll do. You know? And so that's, uh, it was just such an important tool. And it's so helpful because they trend, they, uh, transpose it into concert pitch. So that's super helpful. Uh, it's, it's eight tunes, uh, two Sammy Nestico tunes, two, three, three Thad Jones tunes and three Bob Brookmeyer tunes. And so it's, uh, such a helpful book. Uh, the other books I really like are uh, uh, Fred Sturm's uh, Changes Through Time. Yeah. And uh, the other book that I was able to get, but um, and I've, I've, I've used it, it has some great Mike Abene charts in it. It's Mike Abene and Richard Sussman's book, uh, Something for the Digital Arranger, or uh, I forget, but it's Richard Sussman's and Mike Abene's book. You can't miss it. Jazz composition and arranging in the digital age. Oh, there you go. Ta-da! And that's a great kind of comprehensive book. Yeah, yeah. But towards the end, there's a bunch of Abeni's charts. And Mike Abeni is one of my very favorite arrangers. He just has this jazz wit and... uh, uh, What's the right word? Mm. Just uh, boldness in his harmonic choices. You know, it's, it's really... It's uh-huh. jarring, but never alarming. You know, it's it's the right kind of anxiety, I suppose. <laughs> I, it's genius. So let's uh, hit the next question. Um, let's do it. Another friend of ours, Cole Daprich. Hey, Cole. Cole writes in, this is a question for you, Drew, because you use uh, Finale, and oh I mostly use Sibelius. Uh, yes. He writes in, what is the best way to handle doubling an arrangement, specifically in Finale 2012 or 2014? How do I switch apart to a double and then back within the same file? Well, it's simply a matter of, um, you know, I need to open up a file here to make sure I'm going to say this correctly. But you want to highlight a part, you know, where whatever parts you want, in the say you're on a saxophone and you're going to clarinet, um, then you want to go to utilities, change instrument. It should be the one at the very bottom, and it's as easy as that. You just hit change instrument and then you hit the instrument that you want to change. So if you want to do, you know, clarinet, you just hit clarinet. Boom! It does the transposition, and uh, obviously it won't change anything if you are in concert pitch, but as soon as you go to transpose pitch, you'll see the key signature change, and the it'll do the correct transposition for you. So that's the best way to do doubles in finale, in my humble opinion. Tremendous. Terrific. Okay, next, uh, we have a, a series of questions from um, Toshi Clinch. Hey, Toshi. 
our Australian buddy. Good job, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I had to. Oh, I had, yeah. I had he, no choice. Yeah, for sure. Okay, his first question is, how do you work out the price of a commission for a client? Ah, business. It's a common question. A very common question. Boy, oh boy. Boy, oh boy. It depends on the client. Yes. It also depends on you. Yes. I don't know. It's It, it all varies. You know, Gordon Goodwin, because he's one of the best and most uh, celebrated arrangers out there, he can charge basically whatever he wants, you know, if someone asks him to write a chart, um, right. you know. Whereas someone uh, who just finished freshman arranging or soft, whatever, junior level arranging, you know, <laughs> you might get nothing. The, ch- the, the price depends on your skill and your, your notoriety and, and, how, and also just how much money the client has, you know. But I think typically, you know, the way I see it is the amount of time... Brett McDonald kind of gave me this as an idea. You know, how much do you charge for a private lesson? Mm-hmm. So if you do 40 an hour for a private lesson, then that should be the same. That's that's what your time is worth for your mm-hmm. that's what your music skills are worth. And so if an arrangement takes you 2 hours, I think 80 to 100 bucks is is an appropriate charge for that. Um so uh if you know some charts they they're only 40 bars long. And so and so 200 250 is I think an appropriate price and um, or something like this. Uh, I charge, I think, uh, 60 or 65 an hour. So, and that's because I have a master's degree and I, uh, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be called by some people to, to do, uh, charts for them. Obviously if they're friends, it's different, but if it's someone I don't know and they respect me as an artist, you know, usually, uh, a big band chart will be more cause that takes a lot more time. Uh, because you have to also do all the copy work. That's uh, another stage of the workflow. So it really depends on how experienced you are and how much time the arrangement takes. Uh, what do you think, Aaron? Couldn't agree with you more. When you're working to uh, work out the price with a client, the more you can give them to help them, to kind of educate them why you're charging what you charge, I think the more they can empathize with why that is. So um, one one common thing that we all come up against as artists is we, we talk to people that are like, well, what, what do you charge for your services? And we give them a number and they go, that seems like a lot of money. Uh, I've talked to graphic design friends of mine that, that, you know, they charge however much money to design a logo. And then yeah. the, the client says, why is it so expensive? It's just, you know, a simple logo. And and they explained to him, okay, it's you know it's not just those two words; it's hours of work playing around with different um, different ideas, and so it's not just the final result you're paying for; it's the hours of work, it's the training you've received. So the more you can educate them on what goes into the process, the more you can justify charging. I think. Yes, absolutely. That being said. Like Drew said, it depends on who you are, what your reputation is, what the scope and scale of the project is, and then also what is the going rate with whatever community you're in. So, you know, if you're in 
New York City is probably a lot higher. Yes, cost of living is higher. Or if you're a big shot who has won a Grammy for best arrangement, you can charge, like Drew said, anything you want. And if someone's not willing to pay that, you probably go, okay, well. I'll wait for the next client who will because they know what my time is worth. Right. And I always look at it like if you're looking at a chart, you know, the, the amount of experience you have should increase the amount of money that you charge. So when you're first starting out, like, you can do stuff for free sometimes even. Like, you know, if if it's just a good experience, you just need to get some experience and some, like, a body of work to show people and put up on your website. Sometimes, you know, kind of volunteering your time to arrange something for someone could be a really good way to do that and to get some experience. Or even doing it for, like, 50 bucks or whatever. That's That's how it starts. Yeah, that's how relationships begin when particularly when you're younger. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, I'll still I'll still do work for free with friends or who I know just are starting out, you know, or whatever and I don't like to and and people fortunately, you know, they realize once once you get out of school, you begin to realize there's a there's money, you know, and and time is money and not everyone has time all the time and so you start mm-hmm. to pay your friends, you know, more and more as as time goes on. But uh you know, whether it's for singer-songwriters or whatever, you know, I'll do free work once in a while, but I know that I'm developing a good relationship and, uh, you know, should this person quote-unquote hit it big, you know, that's going to be, uh, it's going to be good for him or her because obviously they're getting notoriety, but it's also good because then they, they know they can still count on me to be an arranger or collaborator with them. It's it's like business. You're investing. You know what are you choosing to invest in? Um, mm-hmm. Your investments won't always appreciate immediately. That being yeah. said, you don't want to do too much free work because then you'll you might get pinned as that guy who will do anything for that little money. And so, right, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want that to become a reputation for sure. Yeah, and and you know you don't want to set that precedent so that people can walk all over you for your time. You also uh, have to remember that when you see higher prices, you usually think higher quality, right? You go to Target and you're looking at three different, uh, let's say, three different television sets and you have one that's $200 and one that's $800. You're going to think that the $200 one is not as high quality as the $800 one. Right. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. It's It could be, just be the perception of it. But um, <laughs> the fact is, it's it's kind of a tricky thing because if you charge too much and you're not, and your reputation isn't as much as you're charging, people might write you off and go, "Well, man, that's too much." And if you charge too little, people might, and you really do know what you're doing, people might look at you as, "Oh, this guy must not be that good because he doesn't charge that much," you know. So it's kind of a perception thing. It's tricky. There's a lot that goes into it. The Arrangers Podcast, how to diverse your accounts and multiply your business opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, what, one more quick thing on that. Other than putting in the hours and adding up the time that it takes on an arrangement, which is a great way to start, um, once you start getting more money for arrangements, then a great way to say, hey, 
you know, I charge this much because that's how much this other person gave me to do this chart. And that's what I think my time is worth. You know, I've been paid this before. This is not an out. This is not a ridiculous thing to charge, you know, to say, oh, you know, this is what happened previous. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a great, that's, that, that sets precedent. Exactly. If you can prove that this is the going rate that other people are paying, then people are much more likely to buy into the, re- the rate that you're setting. So Toshi's second question is, when selling your own arrangements, so this is not like the, sort of not a commission thing, but how do you decide on the price when you're just selling your arrangements online? I would just say, look around at some publishers and see what, how much they're charging and kind yeah. of get, a, get an idea of what's the standard and you can decide more or less depending on on what you want with it. But uh, I would just say as long as it's consistent with the charts that are out there on the market, you're probably in the right range. Definitely. Definitely. And, and uh, the other thing you want to be careful is that you don't sell arrangements that you don't own the publishing rights to. Correct. You want to sell arrangements of public domain works or mm-hmm. your own compositions. So it's technically illegal. Even though you wrote the arrangement and it might be completely different from the original, you still don't own that piece because it's not your melody or lyrics. So That's right. Yeah. And if you do want to sell someone's arrangement, you need to... It's kind of a complicated legal thing, but you, know, you or your publisher or your lawyer, whoever you're, you have doing that needs to get permission from whoever does own it and they and then you can decide on how much of that profit they're going to get and how much you're going to get um, and so that kind of becomes a complicated thing so that's kind of something to be aware of uh, and and you may think I'm just arranging this tune and selling it to my friend who's a band director no one's ever going to find out well if if that band director submits their concert program to ASCAP or BMI, and then they see that someone performed that, then you can get in trouble and people that uh, deal with copyrights can come after you and, uh, you know, you can get in legal trouble. So just, you know, it, it can be kind of a serious thing, actually, that you just want to avoid. Yeah. Uh, how about what tactics do you have when you have writer's block but still have to meet a deadline? Ho, 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 ho. Big question right there. What do you do, Aaron? Well, uh, first of all, I usually find myself less prone to writer's block if I'm writing a lot, if I'm just kind of in the habit and practice of writing a lot of music. So I would say the first thing is if you're serious about writing music, if you just sit down at the piano and write a little bit each day, just write out some sketches of ideas you're going to be much more in the flow of the creativity that kind of prevents writer's block. But, of course, we all come up against it, right? So when I do have writer's block, usually what I'll do is I'll just try to either take a break and do something else, or I'll just write something. Just write, even if it's just garbage, just write the garbage down, that's, you know? Yeah, that's um, it. And, and then whatever you can throw it away later like it's totally fine but at least get some ideas flowing and maybe maybe you keep two ideas from that stuff you wrote and then you trash the rest and and keep going but it at least gets the flow going 
And then the other thing is I'll just try to get to the double bar line at the end of the piece just so I feel like there's something down there that I can work with. Yeah, it's so it's so easy to go back and use an eraser than than use the pencil. You know, it's 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 easy to erase and change and modify. Getting getting stuff down is is the best. Even if it's just like, oh my gosh, I hate this. Why am I writing this? Just writing it might inspire another idea. You know, there's so many ways you can change a melody, elongate, diminish, uh, uh, rhythmically, melodically, increase the intervals, retrograde the intervals. You know, like. There's so many ways you can manipulate a melody. Uh, so once you get, but you can't manipulate nothing. <laughs> you gotta have you gotta have something down there first, even if it's just quarter notes, you know, or whatever the simple uh, the simplest thing you can think of. Do you find yourself gravitating towards like specific techniques for, like, let's say you're you're writing a piece and you have the melody and stuff, but but then you're stuck as far as how do you develop this for the full length of the piece. Do you have any go-to kind of techniques you like to use? Um, not particularly. I think the best the best way I uh, overcome writer's block is is listening to something else in the style and not necessarily copying it outright, but really uh, thinking, oh, that worked here. I can do something similar here. You know, it, it's really just swallowing your ego and trying to come up with something instead of the most inspiring, you know, Beethovenian revolutionary thing. It's, it's a, you know, putting it in perspective, you know, uh, if it's a blues chart, you know, and if it's a shuffle, you know, sharp nine chords, Yahoo. Yeah, that, that, that'll, that'll work. You know, if it's something slow, you know, and if it's in minor, just sit on a minor 11 chord for, for a whole note, you know, that could be really nice and make a transition material. I don't know. It's, uh, I, I know, you know, the writer's block can often be when you're writing a melody and you're like, oh, how do I finish this melody so it ends perfectly? And, uh, you know, often repetition is the best way, you know, like retrograding something you did in the first bar or something. I, 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 it's hard to say. Um, but, uh, yeah, writer's block when you have a deadline, it's tough. I I I was doing my doing the Unity Orchestra concert uh back in November and I had to finish this big long uh, quasi concerto for Addison and I was having some major writer's block cuz I just thought it was so cheesy, you know, what I was writing and you know, I I just wrote it down and once I wrote it down I was like, actually, this isn't super cheesy. This is okay. It's typical, but it's not majorly cheesy. And so I just kept it and modified it here and there. And, and that, that was able to sustain me through this middle section. So it, it worked out really well. And uh, just to kind of explain uh, what that is, the Unity Orchestra that Drew just mentioned is a, uh, it's a professional jazz symphonic orchestra that Drew put together down in the DFW area in North Texas. And Drew is an amazing orchestrator. Uh, I've always appreciated and respected his ability to uh, flesh out his material for um, a robust group of instruments. So you can find some of that online if you're interested. The Unity Orchestra is the name. Um, Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, we're, we're going to be posting the music from that very concert, uh, and you'll be able to hear the part where I had writer's block. Maybe you'll be able to tell, maybe you won't. 
<laughs> you be the judge. Yeah, you you be the judge. Cue the sound bite. Do 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 do. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> okay. So, how often do you find yourself following general arranging rules when writing, as well as how often do you find yourself breaking away from those rules? Oh, boy. Dang, we got hmm. like, this is like, I thought there was going to be easy ones. Like, how do you voice a C6? Well, wow. These are all so personal, too. So please, I'll take them all with a great assault, y'all. But, yes, um, absolutely. I'll take a stab at it first, I guess. I, it depends on how edgy I want the piece to be, you know? Um you know, conventional rules are avoid minor ninths for the most part. The trombones and the trumpets, you think of them as, in big band writing, that is, you think of them as a unit and you think of the saxophones as a unit. And so you make each each section sound complete uh, on their own. And, um, you know, that sort of thing. But uh, really... You know, if I'm trying to write, that, that'll that get me a typical big band sound. If I don't want a typical big band sound, I won't follow those rules because I know that's what will, you know, it, it, intention is really the thing that uh, determines what rules you follow. If you want your music to sound aleatoric and uh, strange, you won't write in a tonal center. If you want it to sound, you know, calm and relaxed, you'll write whole notes Probably in a major key, or maybe a Lydian key, I don't know. But the rules you choose to follow come from the intention which you choose to write with. Yes. And so, um, that I guess that's what I have to say about that. It's, it's really, what kind of music, what kind of rules do you follow? Well, what kind of music do you want to write? What kind of, what kind of food do you want to make? What kind of recipe do you want to use? You know? Right. Uh, well, I mean, oh. Uh, what kind of what kind of recipe do you use? What kind of food do you want to make? I said the the wrong way, but uh, you know, yeah, you want it to taste salty? You want it to taste zesty or spicy or bland or warm or cool or what kind of texture? Crispy? I don't know. You know, it's it, what what kind of what do you want? What do you want to eat? <laughs> Drew, I'm getting hungry right now. I know. We, maybe we should take a break and eat some Doritos. Our new corporate Ooh. sponsor, Doritos. <laughs> Will you sponsor us, Doritos, please? That would be hilarious. Oh, man, that would be so funny. Uh, the Arrangers Podcast, sponsored by Doritos. <laughs> oh, man, we'll have to send this to them. So I, I completely agree, and I, I loved what you said about it depends on your intent because... As with all art, your frame of reference and your intentions for what you're accomplishing uh, dictate whether it's whether you did a good job or not. You know, um, if you were trying to write a Count Basie style chart and it, it ended up sounding like a Bob Brookmeyer chart, then you probably didn't match your intentions with the the musical guidelines that you were supposed to use. Right. You know, and so it just depends. Uh, I would also say that, you know, I teach private lessons for jazz uh, saxophone or whatever, as well as arranging and composition lessons. And uh, after doing a lot of thinking about this, 
I sort of adopted a philosophy whenever I teach um, any of this stuff that I don't refer to them as rules as much as I refer to them as principles. They're guiding principles that have reasons behind them. It's not because I think when people hear rules, all they hear is constriction. Oh, if if I have to follow all these rules, then what's the point? It's not creative. It's not fun. It's it's not... You're stifling my soul, man. (laughs) Exactly, you know? You don't know Uh, what I want. (laughs) You know, why can't I write a minor ninth, whatever? So I find that if if you think of them as guiding principles with reasons behind them, then you're less likely to, A, write music that sounds kind of in the box, and B less likely to write music that's supposed to be creative but just doesn't hit the mark, you know? So, um, Which is not to say that I, all creative music is, you know, Sammy Nesico was incredibly creative in, in his time, but now it's become, exactly. now it's become what people expect. And so it, it's, it's, all, it's also influenced by what century you're living in. Yeah, you know, and a lot of times when you have to write for clients, you know, the more you know about the the guidelines and the rules, quote unquote, um, the more you can deliver what they're asking for. So if someone, you know, if a high school band director calls you and, and asks for, I need a swinging chart, you know, I need a swinging fun, um, you know, kind of like think Count Basie or think, you know, Frank Sinatra or whatever. Um, if you if you're not aware of what makes those bands sound the way they do right. compositionally, then you can't duplicate it and replicate it and do your own thing with it. So, um, but then when you get into the realm of your own compositions, then you can sort of take the lenses of that off and, and you can start kind of going wherever you want with it. And then it's just up to your taste. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and if your taste sucks, that's on you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, We're always working on our taste. My taste sucks sometimes. We have fun here at the Arrangers podcast. You know, just trying to keep it lively. All three of our listeners are loving it. Oh, there's three now? Awesome. <laughs> They've multiplied. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now it's my mom, my dad, and your mom. <clears throat> hey, 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 don't talk about my mother that way. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, okay, next question. Uh, as a professional arranger, how often do you work on your own mat- material versus working on material for others? Not enough. <sighs> Although, I think it's good. I think it's really good that it's not enough sometimes. Why is that? Well, you know, I mean, for me personally anyways, if I was if I was just working on my own stuff all the time, I wouldn't take the time to explore other things, you know? Whereas if if someone says, I really need a samba, oh, I'm going to go research a zillion sambas. And then I'm like, and then from some of those that I don't take ideas from, I'm like, oh, that was a really cool composition. I'm going to use that in one of my own pieces, you know? Um, maybe I'm just a bad learner. <laughs> but, uh, you know, <laughs> I, some people do that just on their own. But I kind of need other assignments to help me motivate me to do that. You know, someone sure. wanted me to do a, a drum and bass kind of thing. And it's like, oh, I really need to, I don't know much about drum and bass. I'll, I'll check that out. Um, so I got to learn a lot about how that whole genre works by checking that out. And then 
one day I'll probably write a drum and bass piece, influenced piece, and it'll be fun. That's very true. That a lot of times when you're asked to do something uh, by someone who's hiring you, you might uh, learn some new tricks, some new techniques, and just generally expand your horizons a little bit. Yeah, and I, and I would say this question: How much do you work on your own versus um, stuff for other people? Right, would probably would probably depend on who you are because everyone's wired a little bit differently. And I think you know some of us are geared towards doing our own original com- projects. Um, some of us are are geared towards wanting to work for other people a little bit more and then anywhere in between. And I, I would say, you know, for me, I like working on my own material a lot, but there's times when if I don't feel particularly inspired, it's nice to just get someone emailing me asking for a transcription of a big band chart, you know, where it's like, right. uh, I like the balance of having both a little of both. Um, but what's really fun for me is, is sitting down and writing my own music but everyone's a little different. So some people hate working for other people. They just that's just not who they are, what they want to do, what they don't have any interest in it. So uh, yeah. and some people some people just don't really like writing their own tunes maybe, I don't know, but I I struggle writing my own tunes. It's so much easier for me to arrange than it is to compose. Composing is Boy, it's it's difficult, you know. I I definitely find myself more in the collaborator, <clears throat> you know, and 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 I know that sometimes, uh, I mean, not always, but it's sometimes looked down on because it's like, oh well, you're not really creating your own stuff; you're just arranging. And when in when in reality, it's you know, it's a job, you know. It's it's a whether it's more artistic or less artistic, you know, I won't be the judge of, but. Uh, it's a uh, it's a job, but it's a way to make a living, and I really I really enjoy uh, developing and uh, someone else's piece into something, whether it's for my own creative purposes or whether it's to satisfy their own, their creative uh, ideals. You know, I really I love you know being a cog in the the machine. You know that helps shape the the whole musical output of the of the thing. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uh, a little bit of the opposite where I, I've always gravitated towards writing my own original music or arranging stuff for my own personal, I guess, satisfaction. But I, you know, but that being said, I also arrange for other people. And Drew, you compose a lot of original tunes yourself. That's true. That are great. So, um, so it's, it's good to have a balance just, but everyone's going to be probably in a little bit of a different camp just depending on their interests and yeah yeah good now if i had if i had my own salary and i could write just whatever i wanted to all day yeah that would be that would be pretty sweet (laughs) exactly but you know then there would be no struggle and our art would be i don't know maybe our art would suffer i probably would yeah suffering produce produces great art no doubt about it so let's all strive for suffering. Yes. Um, <laughs> We're listening to the Arrangers podcast. You're well on your way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. The tortured artist. Yes. Ah. The Arrangers podcast, perpetuating tortured artist stereotypes for 
since 2017. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the last question from Toshi is... Oh, my gosh. These are all questions from Toshi? Yes. Goodness gracious, my man. <laughs> Goodness gracious, uh, Mike. That's what that's what it should say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, how do you go about finding arranging work and maintaining a consistent workload? Okay. Oh, uh, boy. This one... I'm, I'm guessing we're going to get a, f- a little bit of a repetition of this one, so we can kind of kill all those questions with, with one. How do you go about finding arranging work? So oh, that boy. is a big question with a probably kind of a nuanced answer. I, I just wanted to throw out that the best advice I've ever been given for this question is uh, what works for one person may not apply to another person. So That's right. some people might That's might right. be in the right place at the right time and they, they get a great client who who hits it big and all of a sudden their work is featured somewhere and, and people start recognizing who they are. Other people might have to work and work and work and network and network and um and and then they finally get some opportunities built up. So um I don't know that there's one answer to how do you find arranging work, but uh, I guess what, what might help is if we kind of describe how we've accumulated some of our opportunities. So, Drew, what do you think, uh, maybe to share, like, what are some of the ways that you've found uh, opportunities to write for people? There, boy, I, where, where do I start? Um, like, uh, this, uh, I got, I mean, it really, a lot of it starts from where I was at North Texas, and you know, obviously, you want to be great at your craft, and but but when you're when you're working as a professional musician, it's assumed that you have your craft down. It's assumed that when someone asks you to do a job, you're gonna do it. You know, and so uh, it really comes about who you know and how you know them and how they know you. So uh, a lot of my connections came through UNT. So even you, Aaron, you know, I've gotten work mm-hmm. from you and uh, I think vice versa. <laughs> I hope vice versa. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, you make friends at school and these are the these are the friends you'll have for most of your life. And so someone recommends you, hey, I know he writes music. And then that leads to something else. Something specific for me was when I got to, when I did my first Unity Orchestra concert, and uh, someone in the audience really saw it and was like, wow, that was, that was really great. Uh, and they recommended me to someone else to be a copyist for a Broadway mm. guy in Dallas. And so, <laughs> you know, it's a, some people might see it as a downgrade, but in reality, it's, it's just a different form of exposure and a different line of work. Uh, yeah. It's not as creative, but it's certainly just as necessary in the, in the business. And so... I got a copyist job, and then that led to uh, as an assistant copyist, I should say, and then I was, and then I became a copyist the next year, mm-hmm. and then that connection led to uh, working as a uh, working in a pit for uh, the same Broadway for, for the same theater, and then uh, and now I'm developing relationships with several music directors in New York. Um, and so 
maybe that'll lead to an orchestration job with them one day. Maybe it'll lead to nothing. But that's just one avenue which came from, you know, my arranging skill and that being on display and stuff that led to that opportunity. So and now I'm now I get calls to be copyists and that can that can really be helpful in a dry month like August or mm-hmm. January, you know, a, a big copyist sure. deal where uh you know that that pays sometimes it can pay really really well even though it's, you know, not creative work, but it's it's something that'll <laughs> it keeps the it, it, it sure holds the rent pretty well, so yeah, and we all need to pay our rent. You we know? do, <laughs> we do. How about you? Do you have a Do you have a story like that by any chance, or or something else? Sure. Just that relationship building that you were talking about is so crucial because, you know, none of us live in a vacuum. We all we all live in a community in a society, and um, the key to Getting work, I think, is a combination of just, first of all, like like Drew said, it's expected that if you're going to do this work, you're going to do a really good job. So just first of all, you just have to be a good arranger if you want to get arranging work. And um, so that comes first, right? It really does, yeah. And then the second thing is just people need to know that you're an arranger. They need to think of you as a composer or an arranger or whatever you're trying to accomplish so that when the job comes up, they think to call you to do it. So Right. Um Right. So that could that could happen in a number of ways. So one way is uh you could let's say you you're going to college or or even high school and you have a friend who who's a really good singer. You know, singers need arrangers. That's one of the that's one of the most lucrative uh, gigs for for an arranger is working with a singer yep, uh, or a production that includes singers. And so maybe you have a friend who's a singer who they they have the talent to perform, but they don't know how to write their own arrangements. Um, Maybe you volunteer to collaborate with them. Hey, can I write an arrangement for you? And then you can get that performed. And then through that, you develop that relationship with that singer then they think of you as the arranger. And then whoever is at the performance start, starts viewing you as a really good arranger. That's right. And so it's it's about developing a reputation, you know? It's about you want people to think of you when they think about who can I call to arrange this piece. And so just finding opportunities to get your work out there in front of people is always a good idea. Uh, if you're going to, to a college or a high school or or whatever – that's a perfect opportunity to ask your your music directors, your band directors, your jazz band directors, or even your orchestra directors if you can bring in a piece to read with with the group. And if they say right. no, then that's that's too bad. I think they're missing out on a great opportunity. But if they say yes, then you can get your work in front of a, a group and get some experience, um, maybe get a rough recording of it, and maybe get a performance. So um, just any way you can get your music out in front of people – I think is good. Yes. The other aspect of that is the people that perform your music will now start thinking of you as an arranger. Yeah. So, um, so one thing that, uh, that I would recommend is putting together your own group. So, um, Drew and I both have our own big bands that we put together and perform with. Um, Drew and I both have written for, um, like orchestral jazz groups of different sizes that we've put together and, and, and done arrangements for, We've both recorded albums. We've both um, 
had pieces played on the North Texas uh, lab band albums. And I would say a lot of the opportunities just come from that, just people hearing your work and enjoying it and saying, wow, I really loved what you did on this piece. Can you write a piece like this for my high school jazz band? That's exactly um, right. So it's it just comes to exposure and getting your, your work out there. And the other thing is get to know established arrangers and musicians out there in the community. Because yes. if you're getting to know a really busy working arranger, they're going to have projects that they can't do because they don't have time or the budget's too low for their level of expertise. And if that's the case, and if they think of you and respect your arranging ability, they're going to want to help you. They're going to want to give you an opportunity. And so they might hand you some work. And that's been um, how I've gotten a lot of just cl- client relationships is, uh, you know, professors of mine who who have a friend who needs some work done and they don't have time to do it. And they, and they might just pass it down to me, and I know that that drew the same is true for you. Yep, because we went to school no together, and and we both got a lot of those opportunities through um, kind of secondhand. So that's how it all starts. The other thing is, um, you mentioned like your peers in school; they may be some of your best collaborators later on. That's right. Uh, I have a friend from uh, Eau Claire, where I went to undergrad who ended up playing with um, the Grammy-winning indie band Bon Iver. Uh, his name is Sean Carey, and then he launched his own project called S. Carey, which is, if you haven't heard it, it's beautiful music, um, kind of minimalist folk, uh, indie mixed together. And Sean was performing at this, uh, the inaugural Eau Claire Festival, which is like a big music festival that's in its third year this year, I think. Awesome. Um and uh, he he wanted to do it with the uh, the Eau Claire College Jazz Band, so he called me to arrange because him him and I had played together a lot in different groups, and we had worked together, and we had a, a, a relationship and a friendship, and um, so I got to arrange some some big band horns for this indie band, and we got to perform on a, a big stage, and it was really really fun. So sometimes just. Uh, maintaining the relationships with your peers can be a really great opportunity for you. Our friend Chris Sharp writes in. Hey, Chris. To say, uh, to ask, what factors do you take into consideration when making an, an instrumental arrangement of music originally written with text? Do you feel the need to compensate for the lack of text? Ooh, fun question. So... I guess that kind of goes into if you're writing an instrumental arrangement where you don't have any vocals, right? And of a you feel <clears throat> like the the text is such an important part of the original song. How do you deal with that? Wow. I think if it's jazz, it means you can take a few more liberties with the melody because a lot of you know you think of a song like uh, <clears throat> Night and Day. You know, it's got a very distinctive night and day. You are the one. Da 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 da. And then this part. Da 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 da. You know, it's not particularly melodic. You know, Rich called those Morse code melodies. You know, and so you know you can you can have more fun instead where instead of da 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 
you know, have add some other things in there. Natural vocal improvisations that a vocalist would do. Um, I think, uh, you know, those kind of things. You you certainly have more freedom in some regards because you have you have more control over what the melody is doing instead of you know resorting to whatever the singer is going to sing so you mm-hmm. can certainly have more fun with it that way if uh, if that's what you enjoy doing i think there's different viewpoints on on this too where where some people feel like they need to be extremely representative of the the lyrical material in their music so let's like a good example would be Gershwin's tune but not for me it's kind of a sad song the the lyrics are uh kind of someone feeling sorry for themselves that they they haven't you know right gotten to to fall in love or whatever that's a great example yeah T- just terribly depressive lyrics thanks ira <laughs> and, but it's funny because most of the, the versions of it are kind of happier you know it's like very much so and and then there's the Harry Connick Jr. version, which is sad. And he does he actually does put it in the context of of feeling down and depressed and sad, and it's really beautiful. And um, that's on the Harry Met Sally movie, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. I'll flick. Have to look up who arranged that. But yeah, that's. I'm pretty sure he did. I'm pretty sure oh. Harry Connick did the orchestrations. He usually does. Wow. That's fantastic. I know. He's got his own gig. <laughs> he does everything, man. He's a genius. He's he's amazing. Okay, next question is from Camille DeVore, our good friend Camille. Hi, Camille. Uh, vocalist. And yeah. uh, she writes in, what are your schematics for setting up an arranging workstation? And um, specifically, how do you set up your workstation with, with the gear and everything? Huh. Nice. How, how how do you set up your gear, Aaron? Well, uh, you know, I've kind of gotten used to writing in all sorts of different places and, and ways because... You, you have an uncanny gift for writing with minimal materials, my friend. Well, thank you, Drew. I, I guess I just find myself coming up with ideas kind of away from my workstation a lot, so I've, I've had to find ways to deal with that. But but my workstation itself, when, I, when I'm when i sitting down at my desk, is it's a MIDI keyboard, MIDI controller, laptop, a MacBook Pro, yeah, audio interface where I can record my ideas, two mixing monitors. Those are speakers, for those of you who might not be aware. We call mm-hmm. them monitors, even though they're speakers. <laughs> Correct. And then uh, I have a bunch of hard drives, which um, after many years of experiencing, you know, lost files and losing work to get stuff getting deleted, I just decided to start backing up my work in multiple locations. So I have a minimum of two backup drives that I back up my computer on regularly. And then I sometimes, for, for stuff that I really don't want to lose... I will put it on a couple more. So wow, um, <laughs> that's awesome. Having a keyboard nearby is is really important for me. Critical. Um, if I'm if I'm sitting down and arranging something or or coming up with ideas, and uh, I actually have an office set up away from my home right now um, because I just find that I get more work done, and that's good. Um, and then I can kind of separate work from 
home a little bit better. So how about you? I have the exact same setup. Literally the same. I have a I have a key I I, I, I use a a a computer a screen monitor like uh, I just bought a big one. It's like thirty inches or something. Uh-huh. So I like using that to put throw my scores on, and so I can read and compose from there. But uh, literally, exact same setup: MIDI sixty one key MIDI keyboard that I just bought, two speakers, audio interface, MacBook, and that goes out to a uh, a screen that I can see. So mm-hmm. at, it's, it's it's pretty simple. I've got my microphone usually close by in case I want to record a saxophone or flute or something. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And then as far as software uh, is concerned, because I think that's a big part of the setup nowadays. Oh, yeah. Well, first first of all, I actually like to keep a lot of staff paper nearby with pencils because I actually prefer sketching on, on staff paper whenever possible. Yeah. But uh, I also I have um, Sibelius installed on my computer. I have um, Logic Pro 10, Pro Tools, Ableton, uh, I also have Finale in in cases where I need that for a client that only uses Finale, and yep. So all of those things are tools that that go into the workstation, and obviously, there's more choices than ever in terms of software now. I mean, there's there's lots of free softwares that are really really good. Um, Muse Score is a free notation software that's pretty robust, and you yeah. Know, when I have when I have students that that don't own Finale or Sibelius, I'll have them download Muse Score because it's it's good and it it gets the job done. So, isn't there a brand new uh, notation software out? I think so. Oh, Do Docrio Do Dorico Dorico. I think that's that's uh, dangerously close to Doritos. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> but anyways, um, yeah, I I use Finale and Logic. I don't, <clears throat> I don't really spend a whole lot of time getting into gear. I have been recently, um, but it's it's just such a rabbit hole, and it's easy to get lost in. And uh, Aaron's really good at that stuff, but I am not so much. I. I'm just learning how to make good demos on logic and stuff. So it's it's uh it's a necessary skill in today's uh freelance music world. But uh it's uh it's good to have a it's good to have a DAW to work in like Logic or Ableton or Pro Tools and and really get to know it well. It's going to be the, it's it's already the future. The future is now. So. Mhm. And DAW what what that means is a DAW uh digital audio workstation. Yep. The more I've gotten into gear, the more I've realized, like, wow, like, it's really all about just writing music, and then the gear just is the tool to create that music. So I've just mm. gotten more and more back to basics, I guess. But um, it does help to have a, a professional workstation so you can be efficient. Give me another one. Scott Neary writes, uh, I would love to know how you break into the world of commission writing, arranging, and basically breaking into the professional world beyond writing for your own projects. We kind of answered that one already. Yeah, I think so. With Toshi's question, yeah, that was a we talked about that one definitely. Cool. Jordan Coffing. Hey, Jordan. Good friend from UNT. 
writes in, I wanted to know how you communicate with clients who are either non-musicians or not very musically educated. Great question. Hmm. This is one that Rich DeRosa would talk a lot about in, in class. He could talk for over two hours about this subject. Yep. Like, straight, without any glasses of water. Like, just <laughs> go on forever, and every single thing he said would be new, different, articulate, and correct. True. Uh, metaphors, in a word, you know, we've already used some, you know, uh, food, using, creating, anal creating analogies and metaphors to food, you know, like when trying to explain to someone, you know, like, oh, that sounds sad. Yeah, it does. You know, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a little, it's a little bitter, you know, it's like, uh, uh, like lentils or something. I don't know. That was a terrible example, but, uh, <laughs> I liked it, <laughs> you know, earthy, you know, uh, potatoes without any salt or butter. Um, you know, and so and so when you when you're trying to tell them, no, I'm, I'm adding some salt and I'm adding some butter here. That's I want to make it a little more flavorful and not so earthy, so that way it tastes uh, more delightful. Um, but they're like, I want it to be earthy. Okay, well then let's take out the salt and the butter. Let's take out the the major thirds and the uh, sevenths, and let's just leave the root and the fifth in there. That'll be earthy. Maybe not bitter, <laughs> but yeah. You know, using analogies and really having an understanding of what music can taste like, what music can look like, what music can feel like. These are all, uh, as Theodolonius Monk said, you know, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. But for the person who doesn't understand music, it's uh, it's the closest we can come using our words. So it's, uh, you know, exploring metaphors. Uh, Another one being uh, theater. Theater is a great one to use, like script writing. And uh, mm. you know, a melody is like a character in a script. And what? how are you going to dress up that character? You know, that character might be the melody. How are you going to dress it? How are you going to... What harmonic uh, accompaniment are you going to use? What's the scenery? Um, who is the character? Is the character light and joyful? Might that be a piccolo? Or is he, uh, you know overweight and uh clumsy maybe that's a trombone no, not trombone <laughs> players i said trombone uh but the trombone can also be elegant you know trombone played in a certain way you know a trombone can also be triumphant magnificent see how i tried to save myself there Aaron? <laughs> they can also <laughs> deliver pizzas <laughs> pizzas uh, we, we, we've, we've gone down the rabbit hole once we start doing trombone pizza jokes. Sorry, trombonist. It's just, you know, it's a tradition. It is. Yeah, that's great. You know, speaking of metaphors and kind of trying to bring it into language that, that uh, the client can understand, I think, is, is the key. And the other thing would be to ask them questions about what they want in more detail and have them send you examples of something that they're thinking of. So if someone's, yep. let's say you were film scoring for, for a project for someone and the director of the film is not a musician, clearly, and they say, I want it to be big and epic and I want it to be theatrical. I mean, those are all words that they kind of get to the point, but they're really not very specific because big and epic could mean a thousand different things. So... 
then your job as the arranger or composer would be to ask them more specifically what, well, what kind of epic, what kind, you know. So what, one thing I like to do is, can you send me some examples? Um, and it's never been easier with YouTube and, and Spotify to no doubt. Send, send examples of things so people can just send you a link to a YouTube video and, and then you can get sort of into the flavor of what they're asking for. Yes, absolutely. It's a great way to go about it, but it can also make things more complicated because, uh, you know, sometimes they'll fall in love with the temp track, which is what Aaron's talking about, something. You know, they'll put a temp track into the movie and they might even cut to the temp track, and which means you might have to, you might have to, uh, you know, make your music according to this track that already existed and you might end up copying it more than not. And so it's, it's, uh, it can be frustrating sometimes, but uh, nevertheless, it can be an effective mm-hmm. tool for communicating what uh, what is needed, uh, particularly for a film. For sure, and and uh, you know, to add to that, you know, sometimes it's a tough balance to strike with standing up for your ideas and adhering to the changes that they want you to make to their to the piece or whatever. I, I would just say try to be patient with them too, because. You can't really expect a non-musician to to know musical terms. So, you know, sometimes I'll catch myself saying things like, "Oh yeah, then it'll modulate into this new key and go up a fourth." And and sometimes they're like, "I don't I don't get that. What does that mean?" <laughs> right. And so then I kind of have to catch myself and, and remember that, you know, they're not supposed to know all this stuff. Just like, you know, if I were commissioning a graphic designer to design my website and they started talking about color schemes and uh incandescent shading and chiaroscuro uh, methods i mean whatever technical terms they they use in their industry i'm probably not going to going to understand a, a lot of what they're saying and so they would have to show me examples and you know so just just being patient with them too is important just realizing it's not a bad thing if they don't understand what you're saying you just have to be patient and willing to um meet halfway yes next question is from our good friend Eddie Eby Ed I would like to know how you guys approach writing in a new style or for a new ensemble good nice. question good question Eddie wow Speaking of which, I'm actually, it's funny you ask that. I'm going to China in, a, in about a month where I'll be learning how to write for Chinese instruments and so, so I can combine them with jazz and stuff. So, so the best way is research. Research and, and finding out as much about that style as possible. Like if you're trying to write a, a romantic era classical piece, you better listen to Chopin and late Beethoven, and Wagner, and Brahms, and all these guys. Mendelssohn, although he's more classical, but still, all, the, all these guys, you, you, you better listen to it, score study, the instruments that they use in their ensembles, listen, uh, figure out how they work, how, how they sound in different registers, what kind of special effects they can use, um, uh, re- and, and then listening, uh, research and listening. So for me, I'm going to be checking out a bunch of Chinese music uh, with the Erhu and the Pipa and the Ditsa and, uh, you know, all sorts of matter of Chinese percussion instruments. Research is, is your best friend. 
It really is. And that's a really cool opportunity that you get to go do that. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, congratulations. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, research, that's it. I mean, I think, too, when you are researching, I always have in mind what are the key elements that make this genre of music sound the way it does. So let's say someone came up to me and asked me to write some orchestration for a bluegrass piece or something. Nice. So, you know, bluegrass isn't really my area of expertise. I I do enjoy bluegrass and appreciate it, but I wouldn't be able to accurately talk about it, for example. You know, I, I don't really know that much about it. So I would probably call up a friend who was really into bluegrass music and ask them about what is this music all about? What are the conventions? What are the... Primary resource research right there. Yeah, exactly. Um, You could always just listen to a bunch of examples and kind of take mental notes or even take uh, actual notes. Those work too. You know, um, figure out are there, you know, are there common chord progressions that go uh, kind of along the lines of these pieces? Are there sort of a scale that tends to be used more often than not? What's the instrumentation like? So, yeah, exactly. You nailed it, Drew. Just research and and then to me, I just like to try to think about it like, what is the most authentic thing about this music? Because there's always going to be flexibility within a genre of music to wiggle a little bit, but then there's certain things that you just can't get away from. So right. if you're writing a jazz big band piece, like a swing piece, you could you could certainly wiggle in certain areas, but you're not going to get away from a walking bass line. Like, that's just essential to the genre. So Absolutely. You know, so it's just you find what's essential in the genre and where you can have some room to put your own personal flavor and personality into it. And that kind of gets you in the ballpark, at least. And then you can you can always ask for feedback from someone who really knows what they're talking about, you know? Always a good idea. Always. You know, a really good example would be Latin jazz, because... You know, for those of us who are more straight-ahead jazz guys, like me, for example, you know, my idea of Latin jazz is pretty limited, you know? And then you you talk to someone who's really, really an expert on Latin jazz, and you realize even the term Latin jazz is really not not cutting in terms of describing what just the large scale of the tradition. I mean, there's so many sub-genres of of quote-unquote Latin jazz that, if I'm gonna write a piece that's a salsa or a, you know, a bossa even or whatever, I'm gonna try to get some advice from someone who really knows about Latin percussion and Latin bass lines and Montuno patterns and how that all works together. No doubt, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good pointing out that Latin jazz is is kind of a misnomer. I mean, it there is a Latin jazz, but it's it's not what people think it is. And there's a whole mm-hmm. sets of dances uh, based around that 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 uh, you can't just say it's it's <laughs> it's not always helpful just to put Latin at the top. It's it's more it would right. be better to just say straight eighths, you know. If you want to say Latin, then you should more specify, you know, oh, is this a bassa? Is this a samba? Is this a uh, uh, mambo, uh, danson, uh, rumba, tango? Uh, yep. You know, I could go on and on. So, um, mm-hmm. and they all have their own, and which, you know, if there's a clave, you know, son clave, is it 3-2? Is it 2-3? You know, these kind of things are 
really important and they just and they make you stand out as an arranger when you really pay attention to them and it also just not not that it not who cares if you stand out the music is going to be more authentic yes intelligent and coming from that place where you know what's happening exactly good question and then here's our last question of the day wahoo this is from another friend of ours david rice hi david a lot of trombone players submitting questions good for you guys so good representation from your from your instrument there you go so his question is i'd like to see how you guys approach writing drum parts what do you guys feel is a good balance between writing out hits and just using slashes? I mean, the real question is, why even bother to write a drum part in the first place? We all know they can't read music. <laughs> I, I, oh. I felt the words coming out of my mouth, and I was like, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> no, no I, anyone who knows me knows. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say these kind of things on, uh, on the public airwaves where people don't know me. I'll, I'll make someone angry. Drummers are sometimes the best musicians on the bandstand. They often have to be because they control so much of the music. Right. They're the quarterback. Yeah, they are the quarterback. They're the, they they call the play. They say they they know what it doesn't matter what band. Rock band? Boy. Drummer makes or yes. breaks a rock band. Good grief. Sure does. Drummers uh usually the most important musician on the bandstand. You know, getting together with a drummer is a great idea, but uh you can put too much information, but putting cues on the top of the... The drummers like to see those, you know? They can ignore them, you know? They can always ignore them, but they can't... Un, if, they don't, if they're not there, they can't know where the hits are. So I like to put lots of cues in the drum part, and then they can decide, hey, I'm going to hit this cue, I'm not going to hit this cue if they're a good musician, you know, if they're a good musician, they'll know, oh, I've got to play these cues. But if I'm not, if, 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 uh, but there are some that I'm like, oh, well, great. I don't need to do that. And then also just, you know, dynamics. Dynamics are one of the big, most important things you can put in a drum part, you know, because how loud are they going to play? The, your, your drummer is your d- volume pedal for the, for the band. I don't care which mm. band. It's the, it's the volume pedal for the band. Everyone's going to play as loud, at least as loud as the drums. The drums come down. Odds are, everyone else is going to come down too. You know, and so uh, uh, put putting in the the cues that you definitely want them to hit. Put that on the center line, the, the third third line, and then uh, any other information uh, cues on the top space, uh, not the top space uh, above uh, above the right above the staff in the space. Um, usually in a smaller music font, like seventy five percent or so. Uh, those are uh, that's what I do for drum parts, anyways. I love the analogy of of the volume pedal, and this is a tricky a tricky thing for a lot of people because I think the biggest rookie mistake that you always see beginning arrangers do is just putting slash marks on the page and then oh, putting it in front of the drummer. That is basically worthless. And you know, think about if you're reading a piece of music and all you saw was slashes, that tells you nothing about the piece. That that's what I'm saying. <laughs> and the worst thing is if you have that, but you have no double bars to mark sections, you know, because even if you do have slash marks, you the drummer at least needs to see how long the phrase is so they can keep track and very, very bad. In my arrangements, I put a double bar line to mark a new section every eight bars because it just tells everybody in the band where does the next phrase start 
and it gives you rehearsal marks where you can you can point to them, and it just helps you organize the piece. And so, what is the point of a piece of music, a sheet music? It's to communicate the intent of the music to the performer. The drummer needs to see the intent of the music on the page. Yes. So dynamics are part of the intent of the music. So they need to see dynamics. They need to see style markings so that they can establish whether it's a swing or a, a funk or a rock or whatever style. They need to see what are the important hits and what are the times where they're just grooving. They need to have cues so that they can follow along with the melody line and so that if they get lost, they can always find their way back. Because you, the last thing you want is to give the drummer such little information that if they get lost, they're just looking at a sea of, of nothing, you know? That's it. Um, so you just want to give your, your drummer exactly what they need, which is any hits that they need to hit very specifically. You need to give them melody so that they can learn how to play around the melody, uh, dynamics, and page organization so that they see exactly when the phrase begins and ends. Yes, 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 yes. And also, you know, I absolutely do not advocate for writing out a drum part or even a drum fill, you know, um, unless it's a beginner band, in which case Mm -hmm. that's okay. But writing out a drum part can often be more complicated than just telling a style. And, you know, you can also, there's lots of other information you can put in there, like ride cymbal, hi-hat, cross stick, uh, snares off, mallets, brushes, you know, lots, there's so, the drums are really a com, it's complex instrument. And uh, we, we don't give drummers enough credit usually. No, uh, we don't. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's super, more information is great. Um, you know, and if you can organize it on the page so it looks good, then that's fantastic. I think that's one of the best things you can do. Now, totally. it's not really worth much if the drummer is not comfortable reading music, but if they do, uh, then it can be, uh, you know, a lot of drummers and guitarists uh, and bass players, you know, just people who would get together and just jam, they might not be really avid music readers. Um, but uh, even just putting together even a sheet, maybe it doesn't have slashes or hits, but you just have verse, chorus, you know, a, a chord chart like people use in church or for uh, rock practices, you know, a, a chord chart can be helpful and just say down, up, you know, uh, diamonds, you know, these are more, these are slang, but it can be really helpful for a drummer who might be following along to say, oh, yeah, that's what that goes like, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep, giving giving them the form so that they can, you know, kind of help organize that. And another thing that uh, really helps too, one, so that's all kind of the how do you lay this out on the page? How do you actually notate it? The other thing you can do is just any kind of descriptive words you can use would help because... Yes, yes, yes. Like, like writing swing, quarter note equals 240. Like that is such a vague description. Within the echelon of swing, there are so many different ways you could do that, the ways you could play, ways that you can interpret that. So... A Philly Joe Jones swing is much, much different than Elvin Jones. An Elvin Jones swing, right? <laughs> I mean, there you go. Just stick with the Joneses. Keeping up with the Joneses over here. Wow. Um, um, but uh, <laughs> how do you notate that? Anyways, uh, rim shot. So, 
<laughs> oh boy, we have corny jokes. Johnny Carson. There we go. So I'll even write references to to specific drummers or songs. Or like, uh, for example, the tune Point Sienna by Ahmad Jamal has a really cool um, specific groove, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's great. But I totally sing it wrong. You can't really describe that in any other terms than the Point Sienna groove. It's true. It's its own thing now. Yeah, and... Uh, it's probably based on another style that you could maybe put into words, but it's just become its own kind of reference that, you know, if, if a drummer doesn't know it, they can just put it on the record and, and that'll be the fastest way for them to get what you're going for. So so there's a lot to balance there, but uh, that kind of gives you at least a start. And then any, I think the ultimate thing is if you just put it in front of a drummer and ask their opinion. Yeah. Yeah, he's ultimately, he or she is going to ultimately be the one who plays the music. So anything that you help them make, you can get them to understand, oh, this is what it's going to be like, you know, that's the best thing you can do. Absolutely. Well, that is the last question. All right. So if you'd like to submit a question to the Arrangers podcast for us to answer on our show, you can um, send an email to thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. And we will answer your question on our show at some point. So, Drew, this has been a lot of fun. Oh my gosh, Aaron, what a gas! It's like it's like we're really we're really just talking to each other, but there's a microphone now. Exactly, and that's how it should. Talking be. about the stuff we love to talk about. These are the arrangers, and we're signing off. Till next time, Las Vegas. Uh, 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 what? Remember to subscribe so that you can keep in touch with us for future episodes. And uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Arrangers Podcast. This is Aaron. And this is Drew. Signing out. See you next time. This has been a presentation of Doritos. Presented by Doritos. That crunchy crunch and that flaky flake will always get you moving.